0: Hey, everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and back with a a new friend to be, so to speak, David Chernikov. And as you'll hear in this podcast, uh, we have so much in common, people, events, history. David, welcome.
1: Mm, Thank you so much, Raghu. Glad to be here.
0: And David uh, uh, wrote a book called Life Part Two, Seven Keys to Awakening with Purpose and Joy as You Age. So uh, one thing... David, is I read this book and I'm thinking, forget about for people who are aging, this is for everyone. Uh-huh. I mean, and and thinking that you're going to wait to wake up. Yes, it is true. Of course, once we start aging, perspectives, perspectives shift. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but t- as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of the podcasts that I do with people, I, I, I certainly encourage when we do talk about the chapter that includes getting closer to death, might as well start now mm-hmm. uh, because as you age and you do get older, you're thinking you're going to do practices. They're not so easy to do then because you just don't have that vigor and energy that you had when you were a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. So, uh, So all to say is this is a great book for not just folks of our milieu that's for sure Mm
1: -hmm. I actually talk about that uh, in the book at one point because the phrase second half of life which is Mm -hmm. attributed to Carl Jung most often um, in that context usually does refer to chronological age um, people going through midlife and beyond at the same time if, if you look at uh, the experiences of younger people, uh, there's oftentimes experiences that we have that lead us to feel like we're starting over in a certain sense. Um, there's, there's experiences, someone gets a cancer diagnosis, right? Or someone uh, loses a loved one or someone wins a lottery or th- th- there's a feeling that people have that uh, I'm somebody new now. I'm starting over in some sense. Mm. And it it crystallized for me in a a life coaching session where someone said to me, this is more than starting a new chapter. This feels like book two in my life. Mm. And that person was in their 30s.
0: Right. So
1: so life part two, in a sense, has a double meaning in that Mm. regard. The chronological dimension but also the fact that we go through these ego deaths and rebirths on a regular basis in which we find ourselves to be someone we don't recognize and in new territory in some sense.
0: Yeah, well said. Mm. Absolutely. Well, just a little bit uh, from you of, I always ask my guests that haven't met before, what is it that... um, When and what happened to give you that glimpse into the reality that what you thought or who you thought you were, Mm. believing in your thoughts, your stories, your habitual Mm. patterns, suddenly and being unhappy, which and you do discuss in the book, there's different ways of waking up. Certainly suffering and unhappiness is one major way or just be some karmic thing that like Ramana Maharshi, I'm not. I'm going to lie down here, and who am I until I find that out, which is an exceptional thing. But what was it for you?
1: Pretty clear marking point. When when I was 13, um, my father died very suddenly of a massive coronary. Oh, my. Um, And I had no sense that he had any kind of illness or anything of that sort. And I was living in a comfortable home with my mother and father and brother and kind of working middle-class situation but comfortable and pretty well insulated and that event just as they say in zen turned everything inside out and upside down Hmm. and and i began to ask questions at 13 that a lot of people don't start asking until they're 55 just in terms of meaning and purpose, and recognizing the vulnerability and fragility that we have as human beings, um, which as teenagers we often don't recognize. We feel pretty invincible at that age,
0: generally speaking. We often don't.
1: <laughs> and, and so that planted that planted mm. a major seed. Um, and and then mm, I probably the next chapter was when i was a college student after a couple of years of trying to party my way to happiness and well-being uh, i realized that it wasn't going to happen and on my 21st birthday i borrowed a book from a friend that i noticed on his bookshelf on yoga and meditation and uh, and i i was living in new orleans going to tulane university mm-hmm. so I was majoring and partying somewhat the first couple of years. <laughs> and I realized that uh, I, I wanted to, to walk away from all of that and change my life pretty dramatically. And I, and I simply never looked back, you know. Um, the yoga and meditation practices were so life-affirming and changed my inner world so dramatically without any negative side effects, so to speak. That it set me on a course that I've been on now for over 50 years
0: mm, yeah mm. It's amazing, really. The looking back from where we are now chronologically mm. and otherwise is is very exceptional. Mm. it really is and uh, it, one of the things you point out, particularly, And it's, again, as you grow older is the reference uh, that we're vulnerable to becoming bound by habit. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love this. Our eyes may be covered by, quote, unquote, the veil of familiarity. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And uh, we might stop really seeing anybody, our partner across the table, as you put it, any meetings, it's, it's all coming from a knee-jerk habitual pattern. Mm-hmm. And that's, which is fairly um, destructive. It can be uh, because uh, it just leads us into all sorts of um, confusions. And so this is where I talked about this when we first started speaking here, meeting, this is for everybody and not to to point it to just people who are aging because that uh, the habitual part uh, the habitual patterns they become stronger and stronger and stronger if you allow them to yes. and so that's why to me to point this out you know i don't care if you're 18 listening to this podcast take a look at those patterns and work with them now because it gets really intransient yes. later in life. Uh,
1: very much so. That's why mindfulness training is so liberating, mm. Mm. right? Because in the present moment, you're not in that realm of habitual motivation and habitual activity. You're in the realm of a kind of spontaneous presence that emerges in direct response to a real situation.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. And one of the major habits that comes into play here is the attitudes that we bring toward older human beings, right? So, if we grow up in a culture that's constantly messaging us that the last part of life, whatever whether you say from 49 or 59 or 69 on, is is a descent into irrelevance and loneliness and physical discomfort uh, if i've been believing that and seeing that in movies and reading about it in magazines and seeing stereotypes of older people that becomes a lens that i look through that actually influences how i experience my own aging and becomes what social psychologists call a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah yeah. and that's and we end up becoming the kind of elder that we least want to be because yes. we've been programmed to be that kind of elder and we've never questioned it or or even known that there was programming operating
0: yeah. talk about you you're just reminding me of something when you talk about our attitudes towards elders and i remember when i first went to india so i'm like 23 4 something and I ended up at the Sri Aurobindo Ashram mm-hmm. in Pondicherry. And uh, be, I had a girlfriend, Indian girlfriend, who, whose family were devotees. And we went there and I thought, oh, this is great. I C- couldn't get to see Neem Karoli Baba. I was waiting for Ramdas to write to me because he couldn't find him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so who was there was uh, a saint called Mother. She was just uh-huh. called the mother. She was a French woman who had come to India just with it. She had a dream to meet Sri Aurobindo. Uh-huh. And they were spiritual partners. And so she was still alive, although very, very old, and around 90, I believe. And she, I couldn't see. So I wanted to have Darshan be in the presence of. And they said, well, she can't. She's not well. And I found out she had some kind of, I don't know if it was Parkinson's or something like a motor function thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so finally, though, they said, okay, you can have an appointment. So I went there and I I had so much trepidation. Oh, my God, I'm going to be in the presence of this very old person who can't, control her body or whatever whatever projections I was going through. Mm. And the other thing was that you had to bring a flower that signified a spiritual aspect. They had devised this whole thing where each flower had a spiritual aspect. Mm. But I thought, yeah, I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to give her something I liked. So I got some bananas because I love bananas. So I'm sitting there. I'm waiting at the door and then the door is opened by, it's as if you went to heaven. He must have been six foot tall, uh, Baba, with long white flowing beard. and cl- I mean, he was so beautiful and shiny. And I mean, I was like staggered. Wow. And he he just went like this, go in the room where the mother was. And, you know, so I had all this fear which is relative to what you just said which is our projections mm-hmm. of of elderly people mm-hmm. and uh and then the thing that happened was like from a book you know how people write i went into the room and it was just filled with light i'm like i never saw light my entire life i don't know right. what the you're talking right. about i went into the room it was filled with <laughs> it had a presence that i had never experienced before mm-hmm. with in any i had to some degree with ramdas ramdas mm-hmm. was a teacher at that i mean he continued to be a teacher his whole life never said he was a guru or anything but he had some of that that he had brought back from Ninkaroli bama mm-hmm. and i went and sat in front of her and i gave her the bananas and she laughed in, in french ah banan, banan. Très bon <laughs> and then she just Contacted me and and the whole, I mean, there's no it's it was ineffable, so not much way to describe except being immersed in in the light that I poo pooed reading in books for for the last couple of, for the couple of years before as I mm-hmm. started to get in this thing, mm-hmm. but yeah, that uh, then they had to drag me out. I, I wouldn't leave, so the guy had to go. Come on, you got to get out of here after five <laughs> minutes, right? And uh, that, yeah, that was Mm. extraordinary how in the moment I got that, uh, of course, the the big teaching was just being in the presence of the divine mother coming through her. And the little one was, you asshole, you have this idiotic thing about elderly people being not well and Mm. you're going to repulsed by, you know, so yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's
1: related to one of the major blessings in my adult life, actually, because oh. I, I met Rabbi Zalman Chakter Shalomi, mm. who was a very good friend of Ram Das, as you perhaps yeah. know.
0: Yes, yes. Uh,
1: when I was 46. And mm. we invited him to Naropa University, where I was teaching meditation and psychology at that point. And uh, the religion department created a chair called the World Wisdom Chair. And Reb Zalman w- was one of the first people invited to, in- to take that chair. Uh, and some years before he came to the university, he had created an organization called the Spiritual Eldering Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, partly growing out of work he did with Ram Das at Omega in the early 90s when mm-hmm. they did those first conscious aging conferences mm-hmm. at Omega.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Uh, uh, and Reb Zalman, um, long story short, I just clicked with Reb Zalman in this extraordinary way, basically. And, and he invited me to join the board of directors of his organization. And then uh, I trained in the particular method and sort of the they had developed all of these wonderful practices and teachings to help people flush out that negative programming about aging. And replace it with the vision that we have in indigenous cultures where the elders are the lineage holders and the wisdom keepers. And the purpose of that institute was essentially to bring that vision back into our culture and to to create more intergenerational contact where the young people could benefit from the life experience and wisdom of the elders and the elders could benefit from the meaning and purpose that they experienced when they were passing along what they've learned, instead of living in a horizontal fashion where 20-year-olds hung out with Mm 20-year-olds and 80-year-olds only hung out with 80-year-olds in gated communities or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. And Rabzalman was a visionary, and he could clearly see that this needed to change and that there was a tremendous amount of unnecessary suffering Associated with the views that people had of what it meant to be an older person, yeah. and yeah. so I've had the last twenty-five years to flush all of that out of my system. And now that I'm, I'll be seventy-two later this month, and um, now that I'm no longer just an elder in training, which is how I would introduce <laughs> my workshops when I was forty-six. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm in an older body, and things are different. Definitely, and yet it feels like a fruitional and celebratory time in my life, much more so than something to be grieving or lamenting. Even though I'm not in denial of the hard parts,
0: Mm. right? It's curious, though, how you keep looking out as if you were 25, Uh out of the eyes into the world and into, um, you know, the the real problems. Uh, which are associated with judgmental mind when mm-hmm. you look out and each person you see is in some kind of category, and then y- you also see where you're looking out from uh, an ancient viewpoint from mm-hmm. somewhere you were a-, a long time ago and mm-hmm. and it's shocking it really is it's shocking. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing that, just to switch the subject a little bit, one I I know because I you you've given credit to Roshi Halifax Joan Halifax,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, she spent a lot of time with us in in Maui while Ramdas was alive at different times and taught and so on, mm-hmm. and she. This was a big thing with her, was embracing the mystery, which is a major part. And I guess maybe I'm jumping the gun a little. It should say, uh, maybe you can tell us before I get into that particular aspect and uh, how she represented it, just what are the six different, is it six? I think there's six different chapters in the book that address the most uh, important issues relative to the second half of life. Maybe you can just list those in in the moment.
1: Yeah, it's actually, actually, there's seven.
0: Seven, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's called the seven I got to find
0: out which one I missed and I better go back to it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no exam here, fortunately, so you can relax. But the first one is what you just mentioned, embracing the mystery, Yeah. right? Mm. Because it's it's that sense of mystery shows up across world wisdom traditions for the most part Part. and it's related to what you were saying earlier about releasing our habitual thinking about who we are and how the world is so we can experience what in buddhism we would call a beginner's mind Mm -hmm. right or what sansa neem the korean zen teacher called don't know mind right and um And until we do that, we're locked into all these habitual patterns of behavior and thought and emotion. And the moment we step beyond that, we realize every moment in a certain sense is part of a vast and profound mystery that the rational mind will never wrestle to the ground. And yet we can become that mystery and understand it through being it, whereas we can't think our way through to the end of it generally speaking. And Mm. um, so the first, I I thought I would start the book there because that's what I experienced when my father died. Uh, I had grown up in the Jewish tradition and um, there was a point where the rabbi came to visit me. I talk about this a bit in the book and, and he was obviously coming to console me basically and make a condolence call. And at one point, in this awkward conversation, because I was kind of a tense, um, I was very shut down emotionally at that point. That's how I could cope with the trauma of this situation. Um, I said to him in a somewhat angry voice, why my father? Mm. I mean, he was a good person. And I remember thinking to myself, there's all these rotten people out there that deserve to die. And my father was a good person with integrity, and and generous and kind to his family and why should he die all of a sudden and the rabbi looked at me with very kind loving eyes and he said david son there are some things that god does that we just don't understand hmm. and i thought that was a terrible answer at the time <laughs> right but if you flip the dial 20 years later here i am directing a hospice program in las cruces new mexico and I'm asked a very similar question by someone when her husband was dying. And in this case, it was a retired couple who moved out to New Mexico. I was in Las Cruces, New Mexico, in the south, southern New Mexico. And, and uh, this, this person had run a, her husband had run a, a successful business for 43 years They moved out to Las Cruces to retire. They had one son in Denver and one in Phoenix. So it seemed like an easy place to be close to family. And three weeks after they arrived, her husband was diagnosed with late stage cancer. And she turned to me as we were walking down the hospital hall after visiting with him and talking. And said, why my husband? In very much the same way. And I almost repeated the rabbi's words word for word, except I knew she was a rational humanist, and she had said to our hospice director, she didn't want to hear any quote silly God talk unquote <laughs> right. Yeah. So I turned to her and I said, you know, um, you know, there are some things that happen in the universe that we just don't understand, and it came right back to me twenty years later. Yeah, and at that yeah. point, I I was self identified as a spiritual practitioner of a sort, and I had been seeing more and more how mystery found its way into every nook and cranny of my life at one point or another. Yeah, no. so yeah, that absolutely. felt like the necessary place to start.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, Roshi Halifax used to speak of it uh, particularly, and of course, in connection with death, mm-hmm. and. Um, mm-hmm. And becoming comfortable, how do we get to become comfortable with not knowing um, roshi bernie he, he walked around, and that 's all he did towards the end of his life. Uh, I understand uh, from uh, Ramdas particularly mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, how do we get comfortable with that notion i mean and it 's not just oh boy i 'd like to be comfortable. And more God talk isn't going to make that happen, but there is a path, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Pema Chodron does a beautiful job in one of her books called Comfortable with Uncertainty,
0: mm.
1: which is somewhat what we're talking about. Yeah, and And I think this is one of the areas in which the various practices that we do are extremely valuable, whether it's some kind of Buddhist meditation training or something like the centering prayer in the contemplative Christian tradition, or the bhakti practices that are done in the yogic teachings, um, the who am am I, questioning that Ramana taught, and, and really realizing that we might know what it says on our driver's license, and we might know our legal name and things of that sort, and what roles we play. But if we look deeper and deeper, Most of us don't really know who we are or what we are in a certain sense if we go to enough depth in questioning that. Um, And so I think those practices help us to become more comfortable with not knowing and come to know that what we are is a process more so than some static thing and that a process is constantly changing and in flow. And in flux, even if there's a consistent sense of self, it's not necessarily as solid as we'd like to think. Yeah. Uh, and, and it can't be known as easily as we'd like to think. A yeah, wild understatement on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so practices, yeah. I think, really help because they move us from the conceptual level to yeah. the experiential level.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Uh, yeah. and you have a great quote from Ram Dass in here, I guess it's from Be Here Now, mm-hmm. which last year was the 50th anniversary of that. We had a whole year on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, what's happening to you is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood, quote unquote, who you are and, quote unquote, how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the spirit for whom, for whom things are all new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you are going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor the self that is dying as well as the self who is being born. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ramdas, God, I don't know how many times he would say, as humans we can live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time mm-hmm. and to um, to go through uh, trauma and grief is absolutely necessary for people who are uh, going through a, a huge life change a loved one dying cancer diagnosis whatever it may be mm-hmm. And at the same time, knowing that everything is absolutely perfectly designed for one to get free of the Kalesha, shall we say, the obscurations, to be able to embrace the mystery. And uh, thats I, I always loved that. Whenever Ram Dass would talk uh, uh, along those lines, I thought that that was a path for people to be able to uh, gather into Deeply within themselves. So yeah.
1: I mean that particular quote I've returned to countless times mm. over the years. Mm. I mean for me it's it's one of the best summaries of the nature of spiritual transformation that I've come across. Yeah. It says so much in such an efficient way, I just find it to be extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah people people out there listening right now there is a path there is a path there absolutely is a path that's what I love about this book, David
2: yeah.
0: so uh, plain spoken i mean, I try to do that on the podcast is whatever I've gotten over the years from many of the same teachers that you had is to help translate that into a vernacular that is useful us, useful for us to in today's age, which is extraordinarily difficult times that we are in, to be able to navigate those. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, the, here's a fun thing. I don't know, maybe it's too long to read, but it's the... Um, we're talking about uh, you said another vision statement captures our predicament predicament in down to earth language which as soon yeah. as i read that uh, that's for me down to earth, yeah. If you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, you're probably a dog or a cat. (laughs) 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 <laughs> the
1: first, someone sent that to me, and I oh, just, yeah. I just roared. Yeah, at first
0: me too when um, I read this. Oh, for um, God's sake! Because um, it,
1: that, that's out of the chapter on visioning, if I recall. And, and yes, choo- yes, choosing a vision for what your life is about, in mm. fact, and mm-hmm. and uh, I just wanted to highlight the tendency we have toward perfectionism. And and the risk of disowning our humanness in the process of trying to be so perfect.
0: Right? Or so spiritual, whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's where Ram Dass's reminders that we have to live on two planes of consciousness simultaneously yeah. were so helpful to me over the years because I could see the tendency to try to spiritually bypass the challenging emotional parts of my life and just leapfrog over them, yeah. and it never worked. Yeah, yeah. it never and, worked.
0: And I know you're doing you're helping a lot of people, a one-on-one, aside from groups and, and so on, and to to help with that in particular, the spiritual pipe bypass. Thing. By the way, did you? I'm sure you did because you have been a student of Chogyan Trumpets um cynicism and magic, I can't tell you how many times I've recommended this book on previous podcasts because yeah. it so cuts through that whole spiritual materialism thing the way I mean he is a master at language and getting so incisive. Uh, it's just absolutely wonderful. Um, well
1: it, it was his pr- early book, Cutting through spiritual yeah. Materialism that actually, led me into exploring Buddhist teachings in uh-huh. a serious way because I came to that first summer of Naropa. Oh, you when did? It was Naropa Institute before yeah, it was yeah. a university.
0: Right, oh, that's right. And,
1: and I came to study the Bhagavad Gita with Ramdas.
0: You did? And oh, I was going to ask you if you were there. Do you know yeah. what? We are, uh, this is uh, my hat as the director of the Love, Server Member Foundation, which I was going to say a bit about where that comes from but uh we uh, are putting that not in its entirety in a selected way the yogas of the bhagavad gita from ramdas at naropa we have video for the most part and Uh, some just audio i'm not quite sure how that happened but yeah we're going to put that out in march everybody make sure you're uh go up to ramdas.org and put your uh, email in to get the newsletter that'll tell us when that's happening and all free, which is what we do at the foundation. So mm. won't that be fun? You can see yeah. in this, you see uh, Joseph, for instance, Joseph and Jack with hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it great. Was, it,
1: it was a, a really exquisite moment that summer. Mm. A, just a beautiful coming together mm. uh, on so many different levels, yeah. essentially. And, um, and that's where I first encountered Trungpa Rinpoche, but I was there, I was still training as a yoga teacher with Satchidananda's organization, the Integral Yoga Institutes, mm-hmm. and I was very, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita was a very important book to me, and, and to be able to hear Ram Dass' perspective on it was, was just dark chocolate from the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. it was just mm-hmm. exquisite. And it was some of, the, some of the most fascinating teaching I've heard him do, to be honest.
0: Yep. It, it, he, it's in it, uh, all was, of the yeah, archives. So
1: in his element, and so this, just the, the, the flow of his teaching in that particular summer was just, you know, first of all, we'd start off chanting for about 40 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. With, With 800, pe- or, yeah. 800 people, right? Mm. And, and KK Saw was there yeah, part yeah. of the summer um Krishnadas was there yeah. and by the time we got done chanting Ramdas could have said about anything he wanted and it would have gone <laughs> over very well
0: <laughs> isn't that a reality it's a, actually that's the reality of why people gravitate towards going to Krishnadas kirtan concerts you do yes. cuz you don't know how you get there or what it is and it's the music and the rhythms and his uh, western chord changes and his uh, level of sincerity about doing it for only one reason not to entertain
1: mm-hmm. to
0: mm-hmm. as a practice uh, that's, mm-hmm. yeah
1: that, you know, the, the, the devotional purity of that is quite contagious Yeah, no question yeah. about yeah, it yeah, yeah. in the best possible way And but it was after that summer that someone gifted me with a copy of Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism uh-huh. and I was so intrigued by Trungpa Rinpoche's view of these Western Dharma practitioners and the strengths and weaknesses of how they related to the teachings.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and he was, you know, fiercely compassionate about cutting through the neurotic parts of what people were doing. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, very clear about emphasizing the value of meditation training and formal training of the heart and mind, and that we could transform. Our motivations and our perspectives and our ways of moving through the world. Yeah, and and it was just true. What there is a path. At that point.
0: There is a path. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We were set on it in terms of the. And you mentioned this in the vision chapter uh, by Maharaji, who initially instructed Ramdas when he asked, "What am I going to do? I'm going back uh, to the West." Love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And that, now, of course, is the name of the foundation that we represent, in all of this work. Uh, but uh, having been set out that way, that sounds like, boy, that's just um, easy to think about, mm-hmm. much harder to actually uh, bring into one's life and execute and um it was like ramdas used to tell the fun story about when he was first there he was saying to maharaji gee uh how do i raise my kundalini and maharaji said well love everyone and ramdas thought to himself what kind of bullshit is that i mean he's got ramdas had all of these Incredible Buddhist friends who were doing arcane practices and three-year retreats and, you know, they were really working. This isn't, mm-hmm. what? And he put it another way, I, I just want to become um, free, whatever, however, he put it another way, which was the same way and then Maharaji said, well, feed everybody. <laughs> feed everybody.
2: <laughs> what? Right.
0: And so, this is how we were set out. Now, in that presence, of course, so much was going on. Talk about the mystery. And I have to say, um, people, um, they don't actually censor me for this, but I do have to say, and Ram Dass himself said it, that without acid, without psychedelics, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. do give you a glimpse into the mm-hmm. mystery, and they give you it after you... Uh, um, Go through the experience, they do give you some substance where you're a little bit as you put it more familiar mm-hmm. and and that becomes less of um a, a kind of a boogeyman the mystery what mystery i'm not you know and that opens some doors now it's you know my caveat is not necessary in in Anyway, it comes in many different ways, through dreams, through music, through books, through teachers, through, I mean, it's just uh, infinite, the ways in which uh, the moment can come, where you become way more at ease with the mystery. And, uh, but we had this, this is, this talk about vision, this is how we were set out in, in a way that uh, has been so profound over these many years and most people out there of course if you know Ram Dass uh, and you've heard some of the talks you have somebody who worked on that his entire life of course and this is uh, another one of similar things when you talk about people who are passing and why is that happening and he was too young and so on. Well, Ramdas was fairly young when he got a stroke and lived with it for 22 years. <laughs> yeah. And in the beginning, what did you he, he was like, "Maharaji did you, were you out to lunch when this happened?" <laughs> you know?" And then later, he was like, "Well, I was stroked by Maharaji. He didn't quite say it like that, but he intended it like that. It was only till he went to India just before he ended up in maui in 2004 and he went to see this uh, saint that was like our indian mother from the time maharaji left till 4 years ago siddhi ma mm-hmm. and and she knew that he had said this stuff uh, uh, around i was you know maharaji gave me the stroke. and she said ramdas maharaji's not giving anybody any strokes it was nature What he gave you was the ability to transform yourself. She didn't say it in exactly those words, Mm -hmm. uh, intellectual words, but exactly that was Mm -hmm. the meaning. And that's what we all have the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. And there's so many great suggestions in this book that would help us with that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And and one of them is... um, as you talk about, the countless volumes of Buddhist wisdom can be brought down to, to you know just a very short six words. Pay attention, don't clean, be kind. Who said that? Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Sally Armstrong.
0: Sally Armstrong. One of the, one of the yeah.
1: spirit rock teachers.
0: Yeah, I love that. In fact, it was said by Joseph to a young friend of mine who was driving him around when he came to a retreat in Maui. And and this young friend said, "I'm you know I'm started on the path. I've been on it for a few years. You have all this experience and wisdom. Can you tell me just one thing? Okay, one thing yeah. that will help me." Yeah. And Joseph turned to him and went, "Don't cling." <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Those are, those are what I call tattooables.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, love, serve, remember as a tattooable. Yeah. You know, it would fit on the inside of your left forearm, probably. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, pay attention, don't cling, be kind is another one.
0: Yeah. Just be um, careful, everybody, going out to the tattoo parlor right now, okay? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
1: right. Might want to wait till the variants yeah. clear, up yeah, up, clear bit, up. yeah, a little bit. You know? <laughs> the other tattooable that I like. Um, came from a, a friend at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, actually, who trained in the Zen tradition. I don't know if you ever came across Mu Song. No. He, he was the he was a, a Zen practitioner for many years as a monastic with
0: Sansanim.
1: Uh, and then he became the director of studies at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies for many years.
0: So next door retent- to Sharon and Joseph's. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, on the same campus, more or less, yeah. there in, in Massachusetts. Um, but Musan called me about 10 years ago and had heard about the work I was doing with conscious aging and asked if I would be part of a program that they had there as, on the faculty. Uh, like they had a track on spiritual dimensions of aging, essentially.
2: Mm.
1: And so I asked him who else was teaching and I asked him, if, if there was any kind of core philosophy or approach that he had in mind when he, because he created the track, right? And, and I didn't want to duplicate things that had already been taught and so forth. And he said, well, I built this program on three basic principles, right? And he, I said, well, what are those? And I'll try to think about what I could offer in terms of those principles. And he said, the three principles are live simply, care deeply, die joyfully,
2: <laughs>
1: right? Mm. Uh, and that's another tattooable Yeah, in, in, in the sense that I'm talking about, which which I think is a really helpful approach right now, given how confusing being in our world is and living on this planet feels mm. to so many of us. Um, We can be overwhelmed by too many teachings, even if they're positive teachings in many ways, right? If if we can't find a way to work with the teachings, and we're overwhelmed by the differences in meditation methods, or you know, theistic and non-theistic philosophies and things of that sort, it's it's just too much of a good thing, almost, right? Mm. And and these tattooables cut through that and come back to the essence. Of the situation in a way that I've been finding very helpful as a kind of touch point, yeah, yeah.
0: I think it's important uh, there's uh, one of my favorite subjects is uh, awakening in- intuition, which is a uh, prominent obviously here mm-hmm. uh, but distinguishing intuition from self deception, I think that uh, oh, you put that story in there I know, I'm just noticing. Of Ramdas, I mean, this is so great. Maybe is it too long it's, to read? I don't know.
1: It's, it's not that long. It's a great example. Oh my God!
0: Uh, yeah, uh, even if I've done this before, maybe on a Ramdas podcast, but whatever. This is Ramdas at a meditation course. I was taking a meditation course once, and I arrived five minutes after the course began. You go in silence. You're not allowed to talk to anyone during the course. I had a roommate. He was very neat. He did hospital corners on his bed. I decided he didn't like me, that I was a slob, and he didn't like me. I spent all week staying out of the room because I felt he didn't like me. I figured I might snore, maybe that was it. But I just got a feeling that he was so clean and neat that he couldn't like somebody like me. I built up this incredible feeling that this guy hated me. When the course was over, he walked up to me and said, I want to introduce myself and tell you that just knowing I was in the same room as you and sharing this with you helped my meditation so much. Thank you. I felt so much love for you. I wish I could have told me. I suddenly saw, Ramda said, I suddenly saw my mind. I had created this incredible mountain of paranoia and spent a whole week worrying about it. And it was all in my mind. I mean, God knows, do we do this, David, on a day-to-day basis in in maybe smaller ways?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Constantly, right? Yeah. And and again, any of the practices that we can do that help us ground and center and quiet down, somewhat like creating the effect of snowflakes in a snow globe settling to the ground as you put the snow globe down on a table. Right, you you can see more clearly what's happening, and which of your your narratives internally are actually in alignment with reality, and which which ones are just diluted, Yeah. Right. And and when we're going too fast, which we often are in a culture like ours that's about productivity and speed much of the time, uh, it's hard to see clearly what's actually connected to reality. As it is, and what's a simple story coming out of our own confused needs or desires or whatever it might be? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a critically important part of this waking up process and becoming a spiritually mature person, whether you're an elder or a, a 24-year-old. Frankly,
2: um, yep. yeah, yeah,
1: um, it's just critically important because otherwise we we create a lot of unnecessary suffering by virtue of our interpretations of events, and which can be quite confused and diluted.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, David, that you're, you must be getting in your work so much questioning about how to navigate these, these days that we're in, uh, which are pretty extraordinary on every level. I mean, it's amazing from the environmental level to the pandemic level, to the political level, to the reality of what we are doing to each other around the world. I mean, so there's, I'm sure you are getting people saying, David, how do I navigate the world that we're in right now? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's been coming to my mind consistently since COVID started, almost two years back now, is... An expression I heard when I lived in Nepal for several years, I worked for the Seva Foundation over there. I read that, um, yeah. Yeah, from, from basically, I got there in, in December 86, and I left in de- December of 90. So, I know, yeah, I was there three years, basically. And there was a, an expression that one of the practitioners mentioned to me who was studying with the same Tibetan teacher, And he said, he said, the the world is like a grinding stone. It will either grind you up or it will turn you into something beautiful. And, And that keeps coming back to me because it's so clearly the case right now. And so many of us feel so powerless to influence these events that appear to be largely out of our control. Um. I mean, we've got world leaders that can't collaborate about the most important issues imaginable. We've got the pandemic. We've got, you know, we've got um, racial tensions that we have known about for God knows how long, and we still are not addressing them particularly effectively in many cases. Um, and so the question becomes, um, how do, How can we respond to these issues that we all have to deal with in a way that turns us into something beautiful rather than grinds us up because it can go in either direction although we can't control the events we we have a lot to say about how we respond and and that's really what i see these diverse spiritual teachings to be teaching us how to respond wisely and compassionately to these extremely difficult circumstances and if that's our aspiration, these difficulties can become stepping stones for us actualizing our best human qualities. And um, there's no guarantee about where that will take us. And yet that seems to me to be the most that we can ask of ourselves. Can we respond with wisdom and compassion and become people who are what the Dalai Lama calls a force for good? Mm rather than a part of the problem. Mm.
0: skills skillful action uh, is so incredibly important and then learning those skills with this which your book is full of perspective uh, perspective itself is a skill which is why Ramdas talk about talked about uh, a lot in Maui In the latter years of his life loving awareness moving out of the perspective of your mind belief thought belief into the center of your chest into the non-judgmental spiritual heart from that perspective you can really develop uh, incredible skills to be able to in my mind to be able to deal with what is going on in our world. I mean, at any time in any of our lives throughout history, but particularly now, um, it seems like uh, there is no choice. The only other choice is to um, capitulate to the polarity, basically. Mm?
1: Yeah, I think part of what Ramdas was saying is no matter how much we disagree with someone else's point of view on the perspective level, um, there's no point whatsoever in turning that other person into them. Yeah. There's just no them essentially. And that doesn't mean that we don't take a strong stand in favor of things we believe in. And it doesn't mean that we avoid conflict at all costs. Um, but it does mean in our heart of hearts that we realize that we're all us in some sense. And, you know, I loved when Ramdash used to talk about Maharaji. I think it was quoting Kabir. I Man, you would know yes. probably, right? Yeah. That, that, you yeah. know, do whatever you do with another person, but don't ever put anyone out of your heart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's particularly difficult when we're living in the midst of a culture war.
0: Yeah. Exactly of the kind that, that we're living
1: at, exactly. Right? Oh, it's so I just, difficult. I mean, yeah. you know, I I just talked to someone that I do some spiritual counseling with recently, who can't talk to her own sister.
0: This is they, happening so profusely. They can't,
1: they can't talk to each other. They've yeah. cut each other off.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, what a
1: heartbreak.
0: Yeah. It's just terrible. we,
1: We need each other more than ever on a certain level. We need to realize that we're us and that we all want to be happy and we all don't want to be suffer, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama often says. And we have a lot more in common than we do on the level of difference. And at the same time, we're so alienated if we're on one side or the other of the polarities in the political Discourse. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's it's much more than what I remember from the Vietnam days. Yeah,
0: I, I absolutely, you're totally correct. And I mean, we're down to this polarity taking its toll on families and friends, etc. Mm-hmm. Spiritual groups, just mm-hmm. by virtue of vaxxed, unvaxxed, conspiracy theories, not. All of it, I mean, it's just the outgrowth of, of this uh, cultural war is seeping into every aspect of our lives. And it's very, very um, disheartening, I must say. Yeah, very yeah, disheartening. I, I,
1: I mean, I think, I think at least for myself, I give myself a little bit of permission to, to feel the grief and, the, and to feel disheartened. And and I'm cautious about not slipping into a kind of despair that just disables me.
0: Yeah, nihilism, all of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. It's tempting at times when I read a news report yeah. that I, I it leaves me speechless or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and at the same time, to me, despair is an okay place to put up a tent for a little while, but not a good place to build a house.
0: Yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> right. So everybody, sure. when you find yourself throwing a shoe at your television, uh, <laughs> take a look. Okay. <laughs>
2: really. Oh
0: yeah. boy. Well, we're at the end of the of the uh, podcast, and I, I didn't. I have so many damn notes here of lovely things <laughs> to discuss with you, David. Uh, I'm going to bug <laughs> you to do another one. That's all. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to save yeah. it, savor it, and save it.
1: I, uh, I I would be totally delighted. It's, it's just uh, if we had some good espresso, we could go on for hours. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> but we will do it again. But I do want that you do make. Uh, there is one quote which is a beautiful way to end the podcast, and mm. uh, from the Dhammapada or the sayings of the Buddha: mm. "Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health." even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way.
2: Mm.
0: And we've been talking this the whole time. There is a way, and that this book represents there is a path. And uh, having that, Knowledge should be a little bit, um, we can gather some sustenance from it and and allows us to move forward um, without, well, not without anything. Move forward in what this thing from the Dhammapada says, in joy, in love, in peace, in health. And uh, the trick of it all is look within, be still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so Wonderful. much, David. Been so great. And by the way, everybody in the show notes will be linked up with David's work and his book. And uh, again, look out because we're, we are going to do this again. I'm, I'm going to get after David at one point as we get into this new year. And such a pleasure, David. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, everybody out there, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And many of the people that, uh, or not many, but a good portion of people that David um, is close to and that are references in the book from Jack Cornfield to Sharon Salzberg, they're on our network doing podcasts. And uh, so we're pretty uh, happy about... Uh, What's going on with Be Here Now Network? Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check it out. And we will see you next week. Ram Ram.